You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Church and Pleasant Green Road. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. 40, um, I was still not ready to be a parent. Now, you've got to understand, I had already been a parent for 10 years or, or nine years or whatever. How long? 13. <laughs> See, and they, and they say that ladies lose brain cells through pregnancy. It can happen with guys, too. So, so you know, at, at that age, I'm, I'm, saying, I'm not ready to be a parent, and I've got a teenager. And so I, I don't know that there's, there's great, um, there's a set book on how to raise kids. In fact, every book I've ever read, or a lot of the books I've read are, are by people that never had kids or haven't had kids yet or something like that because I was an expert in, in dealing with teenagers until I had one. And then all the stuff that I thought I knew as a student minister, as a student pastor, is gone because all the circumstances changed, all the arguments changed, all the dinner discussions changed. And so there are a few things that I, I want to throw out this morning and, and just let us dive deeper into it as we look at some examples from Scripture um, of some parents, some, some dads, and a mom, and some kids, and some decisions. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but there is something magical, and don't get weirded out by that term, but magical about the, the number three, right? You know that? Well, we say God is three in one, so that, that'd be a place. It's not really magical, but it's part of it. But then we, then we move over to three strikes and you're out. So get that, because it's baseball season. And then um, three egg omelets, because two eggs don't seem to, to make it enough, but three is just about right, unless they're farm fresh eggs, in which case they're eggs like this. So, so then, then you can go two. But three egg omelets, and, and then you've got um, sneezes. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. I know some people that sneeze in threes. They don't do threes, or if they do two, you know another one's coming. It's kind of like that at my house. And then you've got the phrase, th this phrase, I'm going to count to three. You, you've heard that one. Because if I get to four, you, child, are in big, big trouble. I remember hearing that, and I knew that if my dad or my mom said, I'm going to count to three, and they began, then, then I was already close to trouble. And so I would, I would listen, and, and it usually came with a, um, a first name, a proper first name, not Bob, but the, the Robert kind, with a middle name, and then a last name, just in case I forgot whose kid I was. And they would go and, and they'd say, you don't want me to get the four. And I remember doing that as a parent as well with, my, with our kids going, I'm going to count to three. And you say, one, two, two and a half, two and three quarters. You know, I'm, I'm trying to give you a chance. I'm trying to show some mercy here. I haven't got the three yet. But if we get there, you're in big, big trouble. And so we go through that. And, and there was always this, um, 
this idea of what do I do with my kids? And how do I relate to them? And, and do I, at one point, am I a parent or am I a friend? Am I a counselor? And, and really, you're all of those things as a parent. And every single one of us, in some form or fashion, has some parent, parental responsibility. They say, I do not. They're out of my house. <laughs> okay. They'll be back. So that's, that's a possibility. That's why when we're, we're looking at houses and we're going, we're going to need room. We don't know. We can't guarantee it. Thinking grandkids, but if the whole group moves back, it's going to mess up the family budget. So that's going to, what's going to happen. But, you know, we've, we, we may not feel prepared or we may not be prepared and we, don't know exactly, we may not know exactly what to do. But God is a God of grace, and, um, and He helps us through that. Now, I've got grown kids now, and, and fortunately, now they just call and ask for advice. I don't have to give it unsolicited. So that happens. We, but we, we know that whether you have children or don't have children, that we have the opportunity to invest in the lives of those that are younger. And we can say, you know, this is what I learned, or this is what I did, and man, did I mess up. And I don't want you to mess up like that. And so we all have this parental responsibility. Those that are older here can take a, uh, somebody that's younger and say, this is, this is how you do marriage, or this is how you do parenting. It is really not good for your kids to be standing up on a table dancing, during dinner, you know, uh, not a good idea. It's probably not something you want to do later. And so, so there's all kinds of things that can play into that. But there's some, some things that I want to talk about this morning, just some principles that, that we'll learn from Scripture that are kind of big, broad ideas and, and principles as we deal with kids or the influence of somebody else's kids. So why is parenting both a blessing and a source of heartache? Because it just is. It is also an investment. And we could, we could fill in this blank. We want our children to, and then you fill it in. We go through this thing. We, we want our kids to do this. And it may be we want our children to be financially responsible. Or we want our children to hold down a job longer than six months. Well, it may take a couple of six-month stints before they figure out, figure out how to hold it for a year. There's all those. Or I want my child to be in church. I want my child to love God. I've had a conversation with a pastor that came to me and said, how come my kids don't love God? And I said, I don't know, but I sure can't make them do it. They've got to love God on their own. They've got to own their faith. And so we don't really enter parenting saying, God, help me to do such a poor job that everything goes crazy. We don't usually enter it like that. Sometimes that's where it ends up for a while. If you look at Psalm 127, we're going to briefly go there, then we're going to jump over to, to um, what we're going to really talk about. And, but if you would stand as we read this together, it'll kind of set the tone and, ask, and help us ask a question 
on the front end of this, of this message this morning. Psalm 127, 3 through 5 says this. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put, be put to shame and when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that children are a blessing, but God, that sometimes they, they um, give us gray hair. They make our, us pull our hair out. And Father, it is just, sometimes it's frustrating at the same time we look at your word and, and we see that you declare that they are a blessing. And, and God, sometimes we see contradictions. We've got to reconcile that. And so God, help us as we look at this to realize what is our responsibility, what is not our responsibility, and Father, in all of it, to trust you along the way, along the journey. So God, teach us this morning how to parent, how to be that mentor, how to be that grandparent or that guardian that we need to be so that the children that we influence will grow up to praise you and love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. God, may, may this today be honoring to you and may folks hear your voice beyond my voice or anything else that takes place in here today. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 127 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, a fruit of the, of the womb, a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are childs of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And my question this morning as I start this is, is that true? Because I'm sure whether you've been through it or going through it or maybe even thinking about it could happen, there are times when children frustrate us. And it could be as simple as they won't go to sleep. It could be as simple as that. It could be much more complicated. It could be that a child walks out and decides that they're going to pursue a different, completely different lifestyle than you're comfortable with. And you've got to deal with that. And then you come back to Psalm 127 says that, and ask the question that if this is happening in my child's life, how in the world are they a blessing? Because at this point, you're going... They seem like a curse. They're dragging me. They're stealing my energy. They're taking all my joy out of the parenting model, and I don't know what to do with it. And so we can question Psalm 127, but it doesn't make Psalm 127 any less true. Psalm 127 says that they are a blessing, and we've got to say, okay, well, how are they a blessing? And what do I do with it? Children will not always please their parents, right? 
They won't. They're going to disappoint. But if you put yourself in the position of a child under the authority of God the Father, what would you say God's view of His children are? Mm. So God's, God's going, is Psalm 127 true? Yeah, I know that I wrote it. I know I meant it. I know it's true, but I've got some kids that aren't doing real well. I've got some kids that have kind of walked away or, or struggled. I think God understands the, the plight of parents very well because he is a good parent. He is a just parent. And so as much as we may struggle, we have to realize that our our dedication, our commitment to God is something that pleases that Father, Holy God Father. And then we look to parent the best way we can in trusting that God is working as well. So the first thing I want us to understand is that we don't always understand the work of God. We don't always understand the work of God. Turn with me to um, 1 Samuel. 16. 1 Samuel 16, verses 10 through 13. You say, well, this is a strange passage for this. Well, just hang on, okay? So, so Samuel is going to see Jesse, new king for Israel. Saul is not doing what he's supposed to do as king. And so it says prior to that, that as, um, as Samuel understands this, Samuel, I have rejected Saul as king over Israel, and I want you to go to Jesse, and we're going to pick out one of his sons. So that's the idea. So Jesse, in, um, in verse 10, And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? Because if I, I know what my task is, my task is to anoint a king. You've brought me these, and yet I, I'm not sensing, sensing the Lord leading me to any of these guys. And so the Lord had not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And so, ask Jesse, and Jesse says, well, I've given you all the good ones. I've showed you what I thought. I've I pulled those. Those are the front of the shelf guys that I want you to pick from. And God tells Samuel, no. It's not what I want. It's not who I want. So Jesse says, there's one more out there, and he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. And so Samuel has this youngest and he anoints him with oil. Now, there's a lot of things that happen in here, and you've got to put yourself in the position of the parent, Jesse, watching this. Sammy, you haven't picked anybody that I would have chosen. 
You've chosen my youngest son, who I would not have chosen. He had a job to do. And now everything is going to change in this family. The dynamics change. Because here you have one that was probably put out and said, you go watch the sheep. We've got more important things to do. All of a sudden, it's, oh, you're important. And so all the family dynamics change. The implications of, of David now being king or anointed as king but not king have to come into play as well. Because Jesse's going, oh, now I'm dad to the king, not just dad to a shepherd. It kind of messes things up. I want you to think about if you have a son or a daughter and they got to a position of prominence, what it would be like. How would you react? How would you respond to that? And that's what's happened here. So we may see the pattern of what God has accomplished in the past, but understand that God may take a different way with somebody else. We don't write the journey for our kids. We don't always understand the work of God. The calling on a child's life may not fit your agenda. And we have agendas for our kids. I, I look at it, and, and sometimes understanding the agenda that God has can be an uncomfortable place. It was uncomfortable to send our daughter to Bangladesh. The, the uncomfortable part wasn't even while she was there. That wasn't too bad because she was with some folks that, that she knew. The, the problem was the journey. She traveled over to India by herself on a plane. I'm thinking my five foot one, two, I guess we can stretch it. Um, my five foot something daughter is traveling by herself on an airplane to a foreign country and halfway across she has to stop for eight hours and take a nap. And so it, it was concerning. It's where God wanted her. And so we had to let go of, of that. And sometimes the, what God chooses shatters the dreams that we have for our kids. Because we may have something in mind and God has something else in mind. So what did Jesse want for David? To be shepherd or king? Well, at that point, it was shepherd. I'm pretty sure he didn't think, man, I'm growing a shepherd to be a king. Probably wasn't in Jesse's mind. Did Jesse understand the consequences of that anointing? I don't think he did. Because you know how the story works. David gets anointed king and ends up being kind of swooshed over into Saul's court. And Saul does not like David. And so, so David becomes a fugitive. And Saul begins chasing him. Now, if I'm Jesse sitting back as dad of David, I'm like, take care of my kid. What is going on here? God, why have you put my child in such danger? Why have you put him in a place where somebody wants to kill him? And how good is your plan? God, do you really know what you're doing? And so it becomes this, this turmoil inside Jesse's life. But David, being the anointed king, following God and doing what God's asked him to do, has to say, I'm choosing to follow God, I'm choosing to listen to God, and I will move forward. There's a passage in Matthew chapter 10. 
and I know that, that most of us as parents, we not, we're not going to like this passage. But it's a passage that remind us of, reminds us of the cost of following Jesus, the discipleship cost of saying, God, I'm yours. It says, do not think that I've come. This is Jesus speaking in Matthew 10, starting at verse 34. Do not think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I come to set man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. As dad, I'm not liking that. There's only one way that I will like that passage. The only way that I like that passage as a dad is if I am following and chasing after God with all my heart because then I know that I'm going the same direction as my kid. And so parents, you want to stay on the same page with your kids? Chase God with all your heart and encourage them to chase God with all their heart. That's how you stay on the same page. But if I'm going to not follow God with all that I am, and my child says, I'm going to follow God with all that I am, we're going to be on two different pages, and it's going to cause a division within the family. It's going to cause a natural tendency to move away from each other because one is going to be saying, God, what do you want in my life? And the other one's going... Son, why aren't you pleasing me? Daughter, why aren't you pleasing me? Because the dad or the mom becomes the center of attention instead of the God of the universe becoming the center of attention. So we have to say, God, I may not understand where you're at work, but I'm going to chase after you with all that I am and turn over my kid. Turn over my child for whatever you have in mind. The second thing, not only do we not understand always where God is at work, but we don't always like the decisions of our kids, of our children. We don't like it. If you move over just a little bit, flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 20, starting at verse 30. It says this, Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. Now this is dad to son. Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse or David to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. And that is a true statement. Saul's not talking out of his head here, saying for as long as the son of Jesse lives, David, anointed king, as long as he lives on the earth, neither you, Jonathan, nor your kingdom shall be established. You will not be king. The succession of kingship in Israel will die if David lives. At least it will die in this family. So Jonathan, you won't be king as long as he lives. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. 
So Saul said on killing David, he's saying, Jonathan, my son, your king won't, kingdom won't be established unless you bring him here and we get to kill him. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. See, at some point in this, after David gets anointed as king, and Saul re- understands that he's been rejected as king of Israel, he has it out for David and wants Jonathan to participate in that. And Jonathan understands that Saul is out to get David. He was determined to put David to death. So anything he could possibly do. Saul had walked away from God's direction, walked away from his leadership. And Jonathan saw it. Jonathan Jonathan saw that, that Saul had made a bad decision. That, that things were going awry. And, and we have to understand it in this scenario where you have a dad, a son, and a friend of a son, and who's following God and who's not following God, the, the question comes up is, can those two things, can the assault on God's direction and God's leadership be in line with something else that is happening? And they be joined together. And this passage is one of those things where we see all this taking place. For Jonathan, how do I honor my dad and follow what God wants to do? Because if you're a son or a daughter or a parent of a son or daughter, then, then you understand that sometimes there's tension if somebody is not following God. There's, a, there's an issue there. And we say what David does. We see how David handles it. He's given the chance to kill Saul in a cave and he doesn't do it. He's given another chance to kill him because that would be an easy way to the throne. But David, being an honorable man, says, I am not going to kill him because I still recognize him as king. God anointed him first. David, I'm, I'm guessing that his whole perception was that I will get there. God's anointed me, but this is not the right time. And so I will do whatever God asks me to do, but I will not kill the Lord's anointed. David is God's chosen, but he's not immune to suffering and pain. And as a grown man, after David becomes king, we also see that he's not immune to dumb decisions. So, David, son of Jesse, makes some dumb decisions. You can read about it because he, he has this idea that Bathsheba is worth chasing after. He didn't go out into the field with the other guys to fight, but he stayed back and he looked over across and saw Bathsheba and said, Whoo, baby, she's hot. Bring her over here. You know, okay, it doesn't say that exactly, but that's kind of the idea, right? And to cover that up, I think what'll happen, I think what would be a good idea if we take Bathsheba's husband and we put him on the front lines. And we just make him 
make an opportunity for him not to come back. And everything will be good. And, and it's, a, it's an interesting plan. The, the problem with the plan is that God had eyes on it. And God had Nathan. And Nathan shows up and says, David, what have you done? And he kind of reads him a story. He says, somebody that had a lot took something of value from somebody who had nothing. And David said, oh, he needs to die. Nathan said, you are that guy. So what are you going to do, David? Out of that, we read a little bit of Psalm 51 where, where he comes and says, God, I come before you because I've sinned against you. And I ask for restoration. I want to be clean. I want to understand what it's like to have the joy of my salvation back. So David, even as following God, I'm a man after God's own heart made some dumb decisions and Jesse's looking at it going, David, if I could step in, I would. And there are other examples. Hannah prays for a son. Brings Samuel to the priest. And yet we read about Eli, who's the priest. We read about him, his sons. That they've dishonored him. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, it says, says this in, in 12 and 13, 1 Samuel chapter 2, 12 and 13. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. That's awful. You wouldn't want that being said about any of your kids or even you. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The customs of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or, or, or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. But then it goes on and says and talks about how Eli's sons abused the system. And so in verse 33 of that same chapter, the only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. So that's the plight of Eli's sons. They are worthless, and you're going to cry your eyes out because your sons are going to be killed by the sword of men. So even Eli the priest had kids that walked away, made dumb decisions. We're not always going to agree with our children's decisions, and sometimes we have nothing to say about it. So I've learned this, we, that I don't always, and we don't always understand the work of God. We don't always like our children's decisions. The third thing is we don't always have the influence we desire. Saul wanted to have influence over Jonathan. Jonathan, bring David. Jonathan's like, no, I can't. Don't always have the influence we desire. Jonathan was committed to David, and Jonathan was committed to God. He was, his life was set on him. But Jonathan was also committed to Saul, although Saul didn't see it. So I don't want to disappoint you, Dad, but... This is what God calls me to do. 
This is where I'm at, and this is the commitment I've made before the Lord. I remember when I first got saved, I went back home. And my dad, uh, you know, it was a casual thing. He would, he would drink a beer out in the backyard and, and listen to a ball game. And so I went back home after I was saved. I was in college. He said, would you run up to the convenience store and, and get some beer? Now, now, he wasn't drunk. He didn't do any of that. Really never saw that. It was more casual, social, that kind of thing. I said, Dad, I can't. And so I was put in that tension of how do I please my dad and not make him extremely mad and at the same time adhere to what God, I thought God was telling me to do. Wanting my dad to hear the voice of God in all of this because at the same time he's asking me to do that. I'm trying to witness to my dad and my family who I don't know if they know Christ. And so I'm put in that tension going, how do I answer this in an honorable way? And all I could tell him was, Dad, I can't. I can't do that. And it took a little while for that re- for the restoration of that relationship. I'm not talking like years or anything like that. But it took a little while because I had kind of said, here's the line, Dad. I can't cross that. Because God's called me. And at that point, I wasn't even called to ministry. I was just called to, to put away some things that were active in my life before I came to know Christ. And I was trying to explain that to him. Jonathan's kind of put in that spot. What was he supposed to do? Who is he supposed to seek after? So we would want, we want our kids to follow God. So we'd say, I don't have the influence I desire. I want them to follow God. And yet at the same time, I think there are times when we have more influence than necessary. Let me explain what I mean by that. Because here are some tragic scenarios when we place other things ahead of God in the life of a child. That's tragic. Because what it means is, son, I want you to chase after God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. That's what I want you to do. But I'm going to give you an out from that so that we can pursue this because in my mind, my goal for you is for you to do this. And so we put the child in, the, in this tension between, I want you to follow God, but I want you to do this. And that becomes a problem. I'm going to probably step on some toes. Well, I'll tell you what, let me, go, let me go to a story. When I was coaching Little League with Stephen, Stephen didn't play Little League long because he wouldn't play Little League. He wouldn't play and practice and all that stuff the other six days of the week. So we didn't play Little League long. But I had a coach that said, my child is going to be there for practice and playing. He's going to be there all the time. And when he's not at the field doing that, he's going to be in the cage or on a field somewhere else. And so that dad would practice his kids in baseball on Sundays and Wednesdays and every other day of the week. So even if that dad wanted his kids to know God, he put that child in a place where he couldn't follow God 
because he could hear nothing but a coach's voice that did not follow God. There are some parents and grandparents, and I know we want what's best for our kids, but we replace God with something else and made that a God. And I know participation is big. And I know scholarships are big and all those kind of things. But you cannot place something else in front of God and expect it won't come back to bite you. It will. So don't place other things ahead of God in the life of a child. The second thing is when we vicariously live through our kids. You know how that works. I did this in baseball as a high schooler, and I think you can go one step more. Or I see you in the pros. You know, have all that kind of thing. And I can go baseball because that's what I can relate to baseball. But there are other things. It could be music. It could be something else. But we say, I didn't make it, but I'm going to make sure that you make it. And so we vicariously live through our kids. The other thing is, thinking that we can provide better parenting than God. That's hard. We elevate our word over His word. And so sometimes we do that. We don't necessarily mean to. We don't intend to place something else in the life of our child ahead of who God is. But we do it because it's just the pressure of society and the culture we live in that if your child's going to succeed, they have to be at this level. And I want to tell you that your child can be at this level, this level, or this level, and if they don't follow God, it's going to mean nothing for eternity. What matters is, what is their relationship to Jesus Christ on a day-to-day basis, not what it is when they're in college or 40 in the world of financial freedom or a sports team or something else. God desires our kids and he desires our kids to follow him just like he desires us to follow him. And so as a father God, we need to follow him with all our heart and and we want our kids to follow him with all their hearts. I've learned those three things. I don't always understand where God's at work. I don't like the decisions of my kids. And I don't always have the influence I desire, but I have to be careful with the influence I do have. And so I want to ask you this morning, how well do you parent? How well do you grandparent? How well do you mentor? You're a student. You may have younger students under you. How well do the children that follow behind you see Christ in you? Because you're an example. All of us are examples. And so I want to do this this morning as we get ready to wrap up and, and ask God to take us and use us. But God, this is what we commit to you. I want to ask you a couple of things. As parents, I want to ask you, if you'd be willing to follow God with all that you are, to follow him with all that you are, to set an example for your children, and then let you know that the altar is open to pray for your children so that you can support them in a way that would be God-honoring. So the altar will be open for you to pray and to help help them seek God.
above everything else. So we've, Deb and I have been in this situation where we've watched, watched our kids at some point struggle in their relationship with God for various reasons. Becca did it. She had something going on in her life that she called us when we were in Kentucky and said, Dad, Mom, I need you to drive to Lynchburg. Like, what? Can we not do this over the phone? It's like nine hours. Do you not realize that? I need you to come to Lynchburg. So we got in the car. We drove to Lynchburg. And we sat in a dorm room and listened to a story that spanned years. Story that we didn't, uh, something that we didn't know anything about. That Deb and I actually went to counseling about. Because we were were thinking, how in the world did we not notice this in our daughter? We're around her all the time. How did we not see it? And then we've had a son that, that when he was in college, at some point in his college life decided, I may not believe what you believe, and therefore I'm not thinking about following God anymore. How do you deal with that? And then he decides that it's not financially feasible to stay there. Can I come home? Still not sure about what I believe. What do you do? And so we had to come to terms with that and say, God, help us to hear. And so for both our kids, for for a parent who says, I kind of want to push that back, you need to go like this and say, I'm willing to listen and learn and help you walk through it. That's a tough place to be. And so parents, you may want to come and pray for your kids or your um, grandkids. You may want to pray for those that you're mentoring or have come alongside. You may not have kids in here. You may not be related to anybody, but you know of parents or grandparents that are struggling with theirs, and you can lift them up and pray for them. Second part of this is for children, for for students and, and children in grade school. You guys, follow God with all you are. Don't mess around with stuff that will lead you away from who God is. So just as we're asking parents to follow God with all they are, you follow God with all you are. Respect and honor your parents. Ephesians 6, 1 starts out, obey your parents, for this is right in the Lord. That's good. And if you took that out and said, this is your job, kids, obey your parents. Everything would be cool, right? The requirement in that is that parents, you're obeying God. I sure wouldn't want a child, if you're a parent and you are all messed up, I shouldn't want, really want a child to follow you or obey you. I know that stretches it a little bit. But children, obey your parents and encourage them to obey God. So parents become models of how Christ and the church operate. And you as a child may want to come and pray for your parents. Say, God, I want to lift them up to you because I want them to be the example that I need to look at and follow. And I'm comfortable in following them because I'm comfortable in following you. And so you may want to come and pray for your parents. You see, 
when we talk about parenting and mentoring and grandparenting and these things, there are no age parameters on this. So everybody in here could have somebody to pray for or somebody to pray about. And it all starts with a relationship with Christ. It all starts with understanding that we mess up and we need God's grace. So you may be in here and go, I don't know how to parent. I don't know how to be a child. I don't know any of that. Well, I would tell you that the first step is your relationship with Christ. If you don't have that, then the foundation is crumbling. So make that right first. Maybe that you will come down to the front of the church and say to, to Pastor Curry or to myself or Pastor Scott, guys, I need a relationship with Christ. I don't have that. And I want to turn my life over to him. That may be your first step. So whether it's to pray for a parent or pray for a child or come to know Christ this morning, I want to invite you to listen to God and then obey whatever he asks of you. You may be in here and say, as a parent or grandparent, I also need a support team. This church is here for you. And we want to come alongside you in that job, in that role. And, um, and help you to understand what it is to follow God. So if you'd like to join this fellowship, we want to open those doors as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come into this place, and, and God, we don't know how to do all the things that you ask us to do apart from your grace. Father, we ask that you would teach us. And more than anything, help us to be sensitive to following you and hearing your voice. That you would be honored in our lives. Father, I thank you for this time of commitment. That we can come before you as we are. We don't have to have it all figured out on the front end. But you're willing to work with us piece by piece in the process. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to understand what you want and where you're, do, where you're convicting that we would respond. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 10.30 a.m. for our weekly worship service. If you have found this resource helpful, then please share it with others and check out our ministries at ebcconnect.org.